All right, welcome to another episode of the Citizens Take Action podcast. I'm your host, David Edward Burke, and joining me after uh, being gone for a few episodes is John Landis, the uh, member of the Bird Law Group and a certified policy wonk who is here to discuss H.R. 1, the recently passed anti-corruption bill in the House of the U.S. Congress. John, how are you doing? I'm doing great. And yourself? Doing pretty well. It's been a, a an interesting week working on trying to get big money out of politics. And we're working on some things locally here in Los Angeles as well as nationally. So we'll uh, probably do an upcoming episode about some of those developments. But for now, we want to discuss H.R. 1 which was an anti-corruption bill that passed in the House recently. Democrats passed it on a strict party-line vote, so Democrats voted for it and Republicans didn't, um, So, which is a very partisan issue, at least within the Congress. Um, so, John, what, uh, what have you heard about H.R. 1 thus far? Or So, first of all, it's shocking to, to hear of partisanship in Congress. I, <laughs> I that that blows me away, but um, hopefully that will prove to be an anomaly, not a recurring theme going forward. Um, so I think it, the way you describe it as an anti-corruption bill is interesting. I think there's some provisions that are clearly directed in that way, and some that are designed, which maybe ties in a little bit more closely with our mission and what we usually discuss in terms of making sure that every citizens vote counts equally and that everyone has equal access to our democracy, both in terms of their voting rights and also in terms of money and politics, the question of money and politics and the undue influence that a handful of individuals can have based on the amount of money that they contribute to campaigns and on behalf of causes. I heard it described in different ways. You know, some people describe it as anti-corruption, and but the truth is, it it focuses on a few different sort of subtopics: um, voting rights, campaign finance, some things that just seem aimed at President Trump. Um, so why don't we start with the voting rights provisions, the main ones, which included a making election day a national holiday, automatic voter registration. Uh, two-week early voting period minimum, and restoring voting rights to uh, felons who have served their sentences. Uh, John, do you feel like all of those are um, steps forward in the fight to kind of make sure that there's sufficient access to the ballot? I mean, I look at some of these measures, such as making Election Day a national holiday and expanding early voting as things that I honestly can't see how anyone, why, what argument against, uh, ag- there is against opposing them other than people who are essentially trying to suppress voter turnout through one means or another. Like if the goal is to encourage voting, facilitate voting, and make sure that everyone who's legally has a right to vote has every opportunity to do so, I just do not understand what legitimate arguments there are against those those measures with regard to some of the other measures while i personally support them i can certainly see more counter arguments expanding voting rights to um prior previously convicted felons who are no longer incarcerated is something that i personally have advocated for for a long time i can certainly understand opposition to that you know there's it's always a tricky um issue we've seen 
We're seeing it play out with the recent moratorium on the death penalty in California. There's always a, a balance between people who support, you know, protecting the rights of people who've committed crimes or been convicted of committing crimes versus those who may have been victims of crimes or advocates of, vic- of victims of crimes who, who feel the other way. So I, I can certainly see the counter argument, but I, I personally believe that once somebody served their time, they should be allowed to be a citizen of this country. And that includes voting, being able to hold down a job, et cetera. So it's something I support. And I also think given how um, often racially, economically, socioeconomically biased our justice system is because in some of the flaws, including our drug prohibition laws, I think this is something that'll do, do a lot to help to remedy that inequity in terms of democ- democratic access. I also, with regards to voting rights, think that this bill, generally it's far from perfect and it is a bit of a catch-all that it, as you said, but I do think that its general mission is to expand the electorate. And I think that's a good thing. Now, I think you're kind of, the big takeaway on the voting rights is that the bill tries to make it easier for people to vote in general, whether absolutely. it's giving them a day off or extending early voting periods, or at least making sure those exist. And that's generally a good thing if you want citizens to be paying attention and engaged and informed. It doesn't mean that all of them will or um, that every vote is going to be an informed one, but it's good to at least give people an opportunity to do so if they like. Do you see any privacy or sort of personal liberty rights issues with with universal voter registration? Because I've heard some people make claims in that regard. Well, I don't think that there's a really a privacy concern that's got to be any greater than what you know, what happens when people are assigned social security numbers, for example, there are just some things where, you know, becoming a a human being, there's a part of your identity if you're a U.S. citizen. And so I don't think that those privacy concerns are very significant, but that's just a personal. I agree with you. And and I also think this, this bill, to be clear, does not mandate voting, which I have heard some people argue on behalf of, you know, some sort of requirement of voting or penalty for voting. This bill does not do that. So that might trigger more of those concerns, whether one supports that provision or not, but that's not in this bill. Well, let's turn to the the campaign finance provisions, which you know are most interesting to me and maybe to uh, our listeners, because as you know, Citizens Take Action is largely focused on what we can do to limit or diminish big money in politics. So there's two major provisions as part of the bill. So one of the campaign finance reform provisions is regarding disclosure and requiring super PACs and nonprofits to disclose the identity of donors who contribute $10,000 or more, which is aimed at sort of transparency and attacking so-called dark money. Uh, And then there's also a public financing matching funds provision providing a six to one match for candidates in presidential or congressional races so that, say, if uh, an individual contributed $100 to a congressional candidate's campaign, that candidate would get an additional $600 under the program. So we've got disclosure and matching funds. John, first, what's your take on the disclosure provision? This is, again, to me, falls in the category. Like, I sort of try to break things down to things like 
even even when I if I have an opinion, things that I don't really understand what the counter argument is or things where I may disagree. But I think there's a reasonable counter argument like with regards to transparency. I really have trouble seeing what the argument against transparency is, even if like we might disagree, you know, someone might for whatever reason disagree about the types of limits that should be imposed on money in politics. But I don't see even if someone is more supportive of a greater role in money in politics for money in politics than we might be. What, what reasonable their argument against there is against transparency. So to me, anything that increases transparency is a good thing. This is a first step. I think there's stronger steps that could be taken, but it's certainly better than what we have currently in that regard. So I would definitely support it. You know, public opinion polls seem to bear out what you said. A vast majority of Americans um, when asked, we're talking 70%, 80%, depending on the polls you're looking at, you know, favor greater disclosure and transparency so that people can find out who's funding campaigns or ballot initiatives if, if they, you know, are able to look it up and uh, track it down. Um, but you are going to jump to the public financing provision. Uh, so what do you think of the six to one match? And maybe more specifically, do you think that will do much to diminish the influence of big money in politics? Because on the one hand, greater public matching funds doesn't necessarily stop billionaires or corporations or unions. So uh, what do you think of this six to one match provision? I think it's pretty toothless, honestly, without like stronger limits on corporate expenditures, on undoing these bad Supreme Court decisions that we've discussed previously, including, including Citizens United. I just don't think it's really going to make a huge impact because billionaires, big corporations, big public entities are still going to have the ability to, in the absence of, of other regulations and more significant changes that, that we, that as we have discussed under the current situation will likely require at least a move towards a constitutional amendment there. It's just that role is just not going to be limited significantly. So even, with matching funds being an option. And it's something, I mean, I support it. I mean, would be my answer, but I just don't think it's, um, I don't think it's going to do a whole lot to really get at the root of the problem with money and politics. I think it's better than nothing, but I think there's a lot more that needs to be done in this regard. I generally support matching funds provisions. I think it's good to enhance the voices of individuals who are, you know, making smaller donor contributions. Um, However, I've seen some articles or scholars almost describing HR1 as you know something that's going to save democracy or end big money in politics. And it, at least on the campaign finance provision, that just isn't true. It's really a kind of a disappointing example of how little we can do to limit big money in politics without a constitutional amendment if matching funds is the best best option or the only option because you know, you think about Michael Bloomberg or the Koch brothers spending $50 million in an election cycle, or, you know, they could spend that on one race if they wanted to. And so even if you had um, someone chipping in or a million people chipping in $50, they could be outweighed by one person or one company. Um, And so matching funds can only do so much as long as there's still unlimited spending from billionaires or corporations or unions. While I support it and think matching funds are a great idea, it's it's an incomplete solution and we shouldn't get carried away 
about hyping it up beyond what it can actually accomplish. Yes, and I'm a little skeptical about, as I always am with these kinds of provisions, about that the idea that this is going to be purely funded by by fines or penalties. Um, that I'm a little skeptical of, and while I'm certainly not opposed to using taxpayer money if necessary to um, to solve the problem money in politics. I'm a little dubious about spending tax by our money for what like maybe at best like a pretty weak half measure. Like I'd rather see taxpayer money being used for more meaningful election reforms and democratic um, de- things that are going to strengthen our democracy than this one. We should have mentioned and you brought up that the public funding would purportedly be paid for by fines on corporations that run afoul of campaign finance laws. And, you know, perhaps that's the case. There's no way to know for sure. Um, But another component of the matching funds that I've learned about when you look at other programs, like Seattle has their democracy vouchers program, um, where citizens all get a voucher. And I forget if it's 25 or 50 or $100, what the exact voucher amount is, that they can then contribute to a candidate. But in the first uh, initial run of the program, you know, a lot of citizens didn't use it at all. And so even if you have matching funds, that's still only helping individuals who are contributing, which is not most Americans. Most Americans are not shipping in 50 or $100 to campaigns. So even matching funds programs, you know, can be exclusionary in a way that it's only people who are uh, can afford to or are willing to spend money to support a candidate who are having their voice in hand. Yes, and and also it actually like multiplies that effect. Yeah, I believe with HR one the cap is um, two hundred dollars is the maximum contribution that would be okay. matched. That's you know that may not seem like a lot of money to some people, but two hundred not everyone has two hundred dollars to like throw around on political donations. And one of the other, there was another provision within HR1, John, that you mentioned wanting to go over, which was an anti-gerrymandering provision. It would just what can you tell allow us about that? for, um, it would require um, similar redistricting committees to what we have in California. Which, so in California, we have, we have um, currently for our house districts um, provision that requires this all the house districts to be set by these committees as opposed to allowing legislatures to do it. So this would, um, this is another provision that would allow for that. And this is also that's come up on the state state election side in California. Currently it's something that's under discussion. Yes. And of course, gerrymandering is the, you know, irregular drawing of districts to favor certain political parties, which is extremely rampant in congressional districts in this country. And it's been a, heard by the Supreme Court and I believe is ongoing, an ongoing challenge, but hasn't been ruled unconstitutional yet. So HR1 is an attempt to do what we can to limit that kind of uh, kind of perverse distortion Absolutely. of congressional. And, there, and there's some balancing there too, because some, some of the more gerrymandered districts people defend as being like a way to sort of allow for majority minority districts with people agree and disagree on that. But, you know, things like that, that might allow for, you know, to some people's minds sort of more effective representation, representation of certain communities. But you look at some of the maps of districts in this country and some of them are pretty embarrassing. And I, to my mind, what we've done in California 
overall has been very successful. Um, so it's certainly something I think should be considered to be required by the, uh, of all states. It's also something that would certainly be subject to constitutional challenges from, from some states if it was federally imposed on them. Yeah, that's true. But, um, you know, since the court's already hearing challenges, there's there's no cost to trying to, you know, institute a more equitable, Absolutely. reasonable system on that. All right. So and we'll jump in a little later to the constitutionality of some of this stuff as what we think uh, might be subject to Supreme Court scrutiny. Um, but the last sort of subtopic within H.R. 1, and then we'll get to its viability is uh, our provisions that seem clearly like a reaction to Trump. Um, one provision would require presidential candidates to release the last 10 years of tax returns along with vice presidential candidates. Um, another would prohibit federal funds from being spent at businesses owned or controlled by the president. Um, so those are a couple requirements. There's also a requirement to regularly report the president's travel expenses. Now, I'm curious, John, what do you think of these, not only on their own merits, but politically, I think it's an interesting choice if Democrats, you know, if they were serious about passing H.R. 1, you'd think maybe they wouldn't want to stick in provisions that directly go after the president. But what do you think of both the substance and merit I, of some of these I mean, well, provisions? Well, on merit, um, I mean, just, just in the interest of full candor, because I think it's maybe relevant to this topic, I am not personally for the listeners program, a supporter of the current president. But I'm not a fan of the introducing these into this bill for precisely what I what I think you're getting at. In a vacuum, I would support all of these regulations. And I also think it's a sad commentary, in my opinion, on the current occupant that they're, they're that they would be relevant in the first place. Because these are things that I would hope that presidential candidates would not need to be legislatively required to do, they would do it anyway. But with that said, they do seem like basically more like kind of political gamesmanship and the Democrats sort of finger, you know, thumbing their nose at the president rather than what I think this bill, you know, which has a lot of very, very important structural reforms included in it that are hopefully that are reforms that would have an impact and are relevant far beyond our current political situation. I think sort of throwing these in makes this bill seem more partisan and more about like sort of sticking it to Trump than it does about the sort of institutional and structural reforms and increasing democratic access and limiting corruption. Well, I mean, I personally don't disagree that, there, there are corruption issues with this administration, and I do think that especially with regards to the taxes and the businesses, there there are corruption issues that I think are relevant. I think that maybe the elements that are more directly a commentary on the president would have been best served to be put in separate legislation rather than sort of a, a grand picture of like the democratic reforms that we are trying to institute because it makes it look a little bit more petty petty and partisan than I think we would ideally like to see. Yeah, it's interesting strategically. So, you know, for our listeners, and I guess we should get to viability here. So to be clear, H.R. 1 passed the House, but it, it's not going to pass the Senate in this session. 
and that's virtually guaranteed. Um, so in terms of viability, this isn't a bill that's going to pass in this congressional session. And that's not to say it might not have a, it might not have a future in the next congressional yeah. session. Democrats are probably going to campaign on this bill as they run uh, in the 2020 election. But John, to your point, it's not even apparent that Democrats wanted this bill to pass or or gave it a serious chance of passing because theoretically they could have included fewer things in one bill and given the bill a greater chance of at least getting some bipartisan support. What do you make of that? Why do you think that they tried to pack a lot of things together when they knew it would probably mean that the bill wasn't going to go anywhere this session? Do you think they just intended to make a statement or they thought nothing that they put together. Would I think pass. both. And I think, but, but I think it weakens the statement when you put in things that look like they're directly kind of just to um, thumb your nose at the president. Again, I think it weakens the statement, which is, should be that like, we are, this isn't about partisanship or politics. We, this is the goal of this bill is to make sure that everyone who has a legal right to vote is able to do so, including strengthening the Voting Rights Act, which has been basically annihilated by the some recent court decisions or something we haven't gotten into yet, to restore that, which is certainly something I agree with, to make it easier for people to vote and to um, lessen the influence and money in politics, which essentially makes some people's votes effective, or not their votes, but their influence count a lot more than other people's. So that to me should have been the focus, not maybe things that sort of are clearly directed at one specific politician, i.e. the current president. With regards to its chances of getting passed, I think it's reasonable to say in the current political climate that given that the Republicans still hold the Senate, there was, even if this bill were much narrower and did not include those provisions, it would have a very difficult time getting through the Senate. And given the current president, I would say absolutely zero chance of getting of not getting vetoed by the current president and certainly zero chance of getting a veto proof majority through the current Senate. Even if the Democrats were able to peel off, say, hypothetically, five Republican senators, that would be something that would still be subject to the presidential veto. So I just don't real. I agree with the calculus in the sense that there was no realistic chance of this bill getting passed. Until, until unless and until we have a different Senate and a different president, frankly. I, I do think it might have been interesting to narrow the focus of the bill a little more to the voting rights and campaign finance because it's the, the tax return stuff and president's travel stuff that doesn't really I, seem like the others I to agree. me. Um, and it weakens the statement, are, in my opinion, as I've said. And then arguing that perhaps... Democrats were trying to drain the swamp and seeing how Trump responded, but we'll never know what would have happened if they tried that. Um, so as you, as we've said, this bill is not going to pass in this congressional session, but it could conceivably pass depending on what the next Congress looks like, or at the very least, some components of it could pass in a different bill or a similar bill. And so let's turn quickly to the uh, potential constitutionality of some of these provisions, um, because as a quick reminder, the way that the branches interact is that Congress can pass laws, 
But then people can challenge those laws and the Supreme Court can determine whether or not they're constitutional. And if they decide they're not, they can strike them down. And so there are some provisions of H.R. 1 that I've seen people suggest may be unconstitutional, namely mandating that former felons voting rights be restored or uh, mandating that a candidate or uh, compelling a candidate to release their tax returns. Um, John, what have you heard or what do you do believe about the constitutionality of such provisions? I, I think most of I mean, obviously, at this point, again, given our current climate, Regardless of what you or I think about constitutionality in this court, this court might come to very, the current Supreme Court might come to different conclusions than you or I might. But with that aside, just focusing on my perspective, to me, the provisions that raise the most concerns are mandatory registration and also anything that basically mandates to the states how they could hold elections, which includes to allow felons to um, vote, convicted felons to vote, and also setting specific timelines on early voting. Um, those those I could definitely see meeting with some constitutional challenges from the states. Yeah, I think reasonable minds can disagree, too, on the extent to which states should have control over who's voting in their elections or the way it, it exactly plays out. Uh, so I do agree with you that that would likely be challenged. One other thing I want to mention is even though the Supreme Court has upheld public financing systems in the past, they've also struck some of them down. And so I don't think it's a guarantee that the kind of public financing outlined in H.R. 1 would be upheld by this court if it were challenged, um, because even though past iterations of the Supreme Court have upheld public financing in situations like this. You know, for example, in Citizens United, the court answered a question they weren't even asked and overturned precedent as recently as 1990, basically stating that we could limit spending by corporations. So there's no guarantee that the new composition of this court with Gorsuch and Kavanaugh would uphold public financing if they got the chance to strike it down. I have zero confidence that this court would would protect public financing based on their current composition of course that could also be affected by the next by the next presidential election as well in terms of what that court's going to look like going forward and that does sort of go back to the the bigger point of why we we would still need a constitutional amendment and why HR1 is not a panacea because only an amendment can kind of give us the confidence uh, if we pass an amendment that said that Congress and voters and state legislatures can limit campaign spending, only that could give us the confidence to know when we pass a law, it's going to stand. The Supreme Court is not going to strike it down for specious reasons. So before we finish up, because I know you have to get going, John, I wanted to mention things that people can do if they're interested in supporting HR1, because Although we have kind of questioned some of the provisions or raised concerns about constitutionality, overall, greater access to the ballot and publicly financed elections to the extent possible are, are a good thing. So what, what would you suggest that people do if they're trying to build support or raise awareness for or give HR1 or a bill like it better chances of succeeding in the next, next congressional I mean, session? I would certainly recommend, you know, finding out where your representative, your senator, 
stands on HR1, you know, especially because HR1, as we've discussed, is kind of a compendium of a lot of different reforms. I would definitely also like if there's like one or two reforms that are especially important to you in HR1, like let's say your biggest issue is allowing, um, is providing for convicted felons to have a future access to the voting when they're no longer incarcerated. I would not only want to find out if your representatives and senators support HR1, I would also want to know, get a sense of how they feel about that particular issue because it's very possible given that, as we've discussed, HR1 as currently constituted is not going to pass. It's very possible that some of the elements of HR1 might eventually come across as litigation, as legislation that's more narrow. So I would want to find out, you know, focus on the elements of HR1 that are most important to you and find out where your representatives and senators stand on that, talk to them, vote, and vote accordingly. I echo your your sentiments. So if you're out there and you're interested and you support voting rights, campaign finance reforms, things like that, and you want to see something like HR1 pass in the future, find out where your rep stands. And if they don't support HR1, do what you can to see if you can find out why. And that could be going to a town hall and trying to ask them a question, um, you know, why they don't support HR1 or even getting very specific and picking out a provision, as John suggested, that's important to you and asking where they stand on that provision. Because if you ask an open-ended question of why a politician doesn't support HR1, they can give you a vague blow off answer with, you know, something about constitutionality or constitutional questions or something. Whereas if you ask if they support publicly financed elections with a six to one match, it's more difficult for them to dodge that question. Um, so you can always go to a town hall if your representative has one and uh, ask a friend to bring a video camera. And then if you are able to ask the question, get a video of the question and the response and post it online or send it to us, uh, info at citizenstakeaction.org, and we'll post it online and share it with our followers. Um, As John said, we've got to prioritize these kinds of issues when we vote and vote accordingly, because year after year, public opinion polls show Americans, Republicans, Democrats, a vast majority all support campaign finance reform. Uh, voting rights reform, election day being a holiday, but it seems like we continuously end up with too many representatives who don't support those things. And we've got to prioritize these fundamental important issues and vote for only those candidates who are on the right side of the most important issues. Um, So those are some of the things you can do if you're interested in helping move HR 1 along. It's going to be a slow journey, but there are still things you can do. And then if you're interested in the bigger part of the solution, uh, a constitutional amendment, you know, you can volunteer through our website at citizenstakeaction.org. You can sign up to become a monthly contributor through our website. And if you're not yet, you can become a subscriber to our emails, learn about what we're doing nationally, as well as locally, things here in Los Angeles on ethics and campaign finance reform. Um, So... John, thank you again for walking through HR1, uh, the thicket of this lengthy bill. Absolutely. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Citizens Take Action podcast.